Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Podcast public service announcement. You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi-part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. First things first, who is this Pierre Plantard guy, anyway? Here we again turn to the excellent Putnam and Wood and their book on the mysteries of Rennes-le-Chateau and the Priory of Sion. According to the birth certificate that Plantard supplied to Henry Lincoln during their initial conversations for the BBC documentary in which Plantard appears, he was born in 1920 to a noble family. It records his father as having the titles Comte de Saint-Clair and Comte de Redé. On the other hand, the birth certificate Lincoln himself located during his research indicated that Plantard's father was actually a butler. That is, valet de chambre. Plantard explained this away as fake documents the family had created to deceive the Nazis occupying France. But everything we know about the man indicates that this butler version is probably the truth, and that he himself likely falsified or caused to have falsified the later, more elevated record. In any case, by the 1940s, young Pierre was brimming with ambition to be somebody, damn it. To this end, he had created a newsletter that sought to recruit young French people, dejected in the wake of their defeat and occupation by Nazis, to a new order of knighthood. Putnam and Wood note that Plantard's exhortation was short on the specifics as to how this new order would restore France's lost glory, but the whole affair does tell us something about Plantard. Even at the age of 22, in his own eyes, he is someone apart from the crowd. He writes under an almost royal title. He aspires to be recognized as a leader. We would be remiss if we didn't also acknowledge, as the authors point out, that Plantard was a huge fan of Marshal Pétain, the military commander who was installed as the head of the Nazi-dominated Vichy French government, and who therefore oversaw such horrors as the mass deportations of French Jews to death camps in Poland. I hate Illinois Nazis. Anyway, Plantard loved this guy, and in 1940 sent him a fan letter warning him of a Jewish Masonic conspiracy. In any case, the young man's love of the government wasn't reciprocated. He was arrested in 43 for distributing an unauthorized newsletter and spent a few months in prison. After the war, he got married, spent more than a decade in Switzerland, and then eventually relocated to the French town of Annemas near the Swiss border in 1956. He took a job as a draftsman and got to work on his real life's calling, refashioning his humble origins and negligible impact on the world into a backstory fit for a superhero. And just as fictional. The first major development came with Plantard's visits to the area around Rennes-le-Chateau during the 1950s. Though the man himself claimed he hadn't made these visits, locals vouched for the fact that he was there repeatedly and described his activities this way. He behaved strangely and furtively, and though he talked a lot, it was difficult to follow his meaning. 
He was interested in archaeological and natural sites and seemed to be building up a file of the locality. The second big moment was the founding of the real-life Priory of Sion, which occurred on June 25, 1956, with Plantard and three others sponsoring. We know this because it turns out even secret societies must be registered by the all-powerful French bureaucracy. Ugh, it is, um, oh, how we say, uh, de rigueur. This version of the Priory only lasted until 1961, when Plantard founded a new version that then lasted into the 1980s. So, no Templars, no Cathars, no Merovingians. But, as we promised, the Priory of Sion is a real, though in reality, a pretty lame, thing. Plantard turned to the task of establishing a far deeper, more important history for the Priory, one which he could use to bolster his completely fallacious claims to be descended from nobility. By 1964, Plantard or his co-conspirators began depositing various documents aimed at this end in the Bibliothèque Nationale under a variety of false names. Dr. Spence mentions that this issue, that of fraudulent documents being added to archives, is a difficult problem for those who run such institutions to deal with. He and some of his accomplices begin planting documents in archives, including the Bibliothèque Nationale, which is the kind of holy of holy for French historical records. The thing that archives, any archives that has rare, irreplaceable materials, is afraid of is people stealing them. And people do. You really have to guard against that constantly. So whether it's the British Public Record Office or the Hoover Institution or whatever it is, all of them have some kind of precautions against people walking off with stuff because they've had lots of experience with that happening. So the main thing that you're afraid of is stuff disappearing from archives. But there's this flip side of it of people planting things in archives. Because what that does is you see, if you can take your forged documents and you can actually put them in a recognized archive where people can find them, well, then see, that that gives you the pedigree you wanted. So he created these things called the, the uh, documents secrets, the secret documents, which supposedly told the history of the order. And some of those were the Bibliothèque Nationale, other copies showed up elsewhere. And gee, if you can go into the BN and find this, well, then it must be real. On the other hand, what could be done and what was done with the ability to forensically examine those documents. See, this is the thing. Once you present the documents, then somebody's going to look at them, and they're going to find out that they're not what they purport to be. People will still cling to this idea, but they were, they were forgeries. They were just concocted, and as part of his conspiracy to advance his organization, they were planted to give it credibility, which in the minds of some people, including the authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail, they bought it, hook, line, and sinker. In this case, the first forged document was the one that traces Merovingian ancestry up to the family of modern descendant Pierre Plantard, the author of which was indicated to be one Henri Labineau. You mentioned him before, didn't you? That his real name was Leo Shitloff? Yeah, about that. It turns out that the name Henri Labineau was fabricated by Plantard, who wrote the Merovingian documents himself, thus providing his own royal pedigree. Well then, who was Shitloff? Oh, he was a real guy who had nothing whatsoever to do with this story, except that he was an art historian who died in Vienna in October of 1966. Plantard just picked his name from the obituaries and decided to identify him as the real author of the Labineau papers, because no one could check with a dead man to uncover the deception. In fact, Plantard, being a real stickler for detail, established the connection between Labineau and Shidloff by forging an obituary letter acknowledging Shidloff's use of Labineau as a pen name. This letter was sent to an Italian Catholic newsletter on October 17th by one Lionel Burris, another real person. 
What makes the letter super interesting, though, is the fact that Burris had died in an accident a month before he supposedly wrote it. Jesus, that's twisted. Sure is, but in a pre-internet era, it's also a pretty solid way to cover your tracks. Anyway, Plantard had these forged documents, under Labanos and other names, but he needed some way to make them seem legit, which is where his research around Rennes-le-Chateau came in. He knew Beringer Saunier had found parchments hidden in a pillar in the church during his renovations back in the 1890s. He also knew that those parchments had never been recovered. So he apparently struck upon the idea of claiming that Labanot had acquired the genealogy based on a translation done at Beringer Saunier's request in 1892, a translation of one of the missing parchments. Presto changeo! Suddenly Labanot's translation has an entire mysterious history that lends its credibility. If, that is, you are the holy blood rubes. Well, this wasn't just done for their benefit. Plantard had no idea that his ideas would eventually get swept up into Lincoln and Co.'s grand reinterpretation of all of Western history. He just wanted people to think his secret society had an ancient pedigree, as did his family. By the mid-60s, Plantard and his friend Philippe de Cherisy had decided to try to make some money off this whole forged documents, Rennes-le-Chateau scenario. De Cherisy was, in many ways, the kind of man that Plantard wanted to make himself out to be an actual, honest-to-God, hereditary marquis who worked as a writer and humorist, often in the entertainment industry. Using his connections, de Cherisy got in contact with a radio producer, Francis Blanche. It was Blanche, who Putnamin would suggest, decided the whole Wren story might make a good radio feature, but that they would need additional evidence in the form of fabricated parchments to replace the missing ones, which would make the whole thing more compelling. At this point, de Cherisy appears to have taken it upon himself to generate copies of those lost parchments by taking quotes from two different Bible stories and embedding secret messages in them. The first coded message talked about the treasure of King Dagobert II, who is the last of the Merovingian kings, while the second, much more complex cipher, concealed a nearly inscrutable message. Putnam and Wood translated as, Shepherd, no temptation. Poussin and Teniers hold the key. Peace. 681. By the cross and this horse of God, I destroy this guardian demon at midday. Blue apples. Yep. Clear as mud. But it does contain a mention of Poussin, whom you'll recall as the painter whose painting, The Shepherds of Arcady, depicts a tomb with a Latin inscription meaning even I, death, am in Arcady, and that Poussin was in the fake list of grandmasters of the priory, along with Newton and other luminaries and that the supposedly ancient motto of the supposedly ancient priory was almost identical to the phrase in the painting. So de Cherisy worked this Poussin link, along with the word scion, into the coded message he created to strengthen the connections between the painting and the discovery by Beringer Saunier, even though all of these connections are in fact fabricated. Incidentally, while that phrase sounds all cool and mysterious, art historians generally accept that what Poussin meant was simply that even in a beautiful natural setting, death is always waiting in the wings. A pretty common sentiment in art, meant to encourage the enjoyment of life and hardly something that portends deep, meaningful secrets. So, per instructions, de Cherisy created his fabricated translations of the parchments he had supposedly found, but then the whole radio program idea appears to have fizzled out. So de Cherisy and Plantard seem to have latched on to a new idea, but getting it off the ground would involve an act of murder. Quelle horreur! 
Well, the murder was of the Henri Labineau pseudonym that Plantard had invented as the author of his forgeries. By this point, de Cherisy and Plantard were working together on an even more extensive series of forgeries under Labineau's name, which would be deposited in the Bibliothèque in 1967 as The Secret Files of Henri Labineau. But they apparently decided these could appear posthumously, and so Plantard did the bait-and-switch that ascribed Labineau's work to a dead, totally unrelated scholar. And the reason he decided to kill off the Labineau character was, per Putnam and Wood, likely because he had brought his new friend Gerard de Sede in to write about the mysteries that he and de Cherisy had uncovered. You may recall de Sede was a guy who wrote the book about Rennes le Chateau that caught Henry Lincoln's attention and got the whole Holy Blood Bowl rolling. Desed was already writing about occult and esoteric topics, and as Plantard's secret scheme developed, he seems to have decided that his enthusiastic and none-too-circumspect writer friend would be the perfect conduit for delivering his fabrications to the world as a legitimate mystery. So Desed apparently worked on the book for a couple of years in the mid-60s, all while Plantard and Desheresy fabricated new materials for their clueless friend to find. Eventually, The Accursed Treasure of Rennes-le-Chateau was published, became a popular paperback, and ended up in the hands of Henry Lincoln, who eventually blew the whole thing even more out of proportion than the inventors of the whole mystery had intended. So what was Plantard's endgame with this? It's hard to say. He appeared to be much better at the tactics of formulating this deception than he was at leveraging it into some sort of grand achievement. As we noted earlier, nobody was making money off this scheme, in spite of the attempted radio documentary, except maybe Desed from the sales of his paperback. But surely someone with Plantard's gifts could have pulled some sort of complex David Mamet double bluff grifting scenario to help part dumb rich people from their cash. Like, uh, help restore the true French monarchy. We need a lot of money for research to prove the legitimacy of these documents. But when I'm named king, I'll make you Duke Jared Kushner. But of course, that's not how it worked out. Instead, Plantard attracted the attention of Henry Lincoln, who then spun the story into a rewriting of the history of Christianity, something that, clearly, Plantard and de Cherisy had no intention of conveying through their original scam. And then there's the hilarious moment, which we already covered, where Plantard is completely flummoxed by Lincoln's questioning him about the deep secret meaning of the pentacle. The geometry is pentagonal, isn't it? I can't answer that. We know you can't see this, but the look on Plantard's face is 100% a grifter realizing he's lost control of his grift. Like, who the fuck is this dipshit, and what is he doing with my beautiful story? Yeah, it's really fun to watch. And of course, things got even worse when the Holy Blood guys published their book, which repeated the Merovingian nonsense Plantard had fabricated, but then claimed the Merovingians were the Holy Bloodline. All of a sudden, the butler's son, who wanted to be a part of an ancient noble line, was now the actual goddamned heir of Jesus Christ, which Plantard immediately started trying to distance himself from. And eventually, after he had cast and recast his story of the Priory, he got into some legal trouble, had his house raided, leading to the discovery by authorities of forged documents proclaiming Plantard the rightful king of France, and he was forced to admit to his entire scheme under oath. Which again, because we live in an age of miracles, I can play for you right now. Que l'honneur des Français consiste à continuer la guerre aux côtés de leurs alliés. Et nous sommes à le faire. No, Jesuit. I think that's Charles de Gaulle rallying French resistance after Nazi invasion of 1940. No, 
That's de Gaulle discussing the situation in the French colony of Algeria in the 1950s. Je ne puis vivre personnellement sans mon art, mais je n'ai jamais placé cet art au-dessus de tout. S'il m'est nécessaire, au contraire, c'est qu'il ne se sépare de personne et me permet de vivre tel que je suis au niveau de tous. That's Albert Camus' Nobel Prize acceptance speech. J'accuse le lieutenant-colonel du Paty de Clam d'avoir été l'ouvrier diabolique de l'erreur judiciaire. J'accuse le général Mercier de s'être rendu complice, tout au moins par faiblesse d'esprit, d'une des plus grandes iniquités du siècle. That is a dramatization of the famous J'accuse editorial during the Dreyfus affair. Soldats de ma vieille garde, après 20 ans, je viens vous dire adieu. La France a capitulé. Aussi, ne m'oubliez pas. No, that's an actor portraying Napoleon's abdication speech. <laughs> You know, I get the feeling that you're just playing increasingly ridiculous stereotype French language quotes. No. Instead, he uses as a chance to put his testicles all over me. Uh, his what? Uh, how you say, uh, octopus, uh, testicles. <laughs> Tentacles. And tea. Tentacles. Ah, it's a, tentacles. There's a big difference. <laughs> no. You don't frighten us, English pig dogs. Go and boil your bottom, sons of a silly person. I'll blow my nose at you, so-called Arthur King. You and all your silly English niggas. No. Navigator to pilot. Pretty girl at three o'clock. Over. Pilot to navigator. Over. Roger. We'll go. I pierce you with the ek ek of love, flower pot. Nope. Les poissons, les poissons, how I love les poissons. Love to chop and to serve little fish. First I cut off their heads and I pull out their bones. I'm a weak, ça c'est toujours délicieux. No. But wives her. But wives her. But wives her. Oh, Jesuit, another frog joke? Okay, we don't actually have the audio, though we really tried to find it. But it's true, Plantard eventually gave up the whole game, back in the 90s. Not that this convinced any true believers of anything except that the powers that be must have gotten to Plantard and threatened him should he continue to expose the truth. So, at the end, all we're left with is some duped writers, a hapless provocateur, and one genuine, still kind of weird mystery about a parish priest who found a mysterious fortune late in the 19th century, and some strange, disappeared, inexplicable parchments that may have contained some sort of secrets. But... But what? Come on, Jesuit, what's the scam now? Well, would you be shocked if I told you that even the Rennes-le-Chateau story is self-serving bullshit cooked up by yet another con man? There's a fourth level to this goddamn story? There is indeed. We once again turn to Putnam and Wood to figure out how the whole thing originated. 
But first, let's note that Bill Putnam is a fully qualified academic, a former archaeology professor at the University of Bournemouth, and that John Wood is a former director of underwater engineering. Both men bring a level of academic rigor to their analysis that stands in stark contrast to the work of Lincoln, Bajant, and Lee. In other words, they're genuine, rigorous, critical scholars who won't accept hearsay or connect tantalizing threads to make a more durable tale. So, what did they uncover about the real truth of the priest, his improvement projects, the parchments found in the altar, his mysterious funds, and how the legend grew up around it? Well, first of all, and we promise we're not going to do another surprising reversal from here on out, Berenger Saunier was a real guy who really was at that church and really did undertake huge, very expensive renovations of that church, as well as the grounds and a rather large residence. It's rather large. This really did attract the attention of his superiors, who then stripped him of his assignment when he couldn't explain where he had gotten the money and he did operate for years after that as a rogue priest, doing masses under his own authority until his death in 1917. So what's the fabrication? Pretty much everything else. And it starts with a series of lurid treasure-hunting stories in 1956 in a newspaper called Dana en Francais? Le Dépêche du Midi. Or The South of France Dispatch. As the authors note, No reference to treasure, secret codes, or anything else of an extraordinary nature can be found before this publication. Do you remember when we mentioned a guy named Noel Corbu way back at the beginning of our Holy Blood discussion? He was the developer who purchased the Ville Bethany property that Sonia had built and where his housekeeper Now to mind, now to mind, notch, notch, now to mind, sign him all lived after his death. He intends to turn it into a successful resort in the French countryside. Yeah, that guy. Well, though he bought the property in 1946, a decade on, it appears that he wasn't quite getting the return on his investment that he had sought. So he struck upon a brilliant idea. Why not invite a not particularly hard-nosed journalist to visit the place, wine and dine him to a fairly well, and then spin him a yarn that will make Rennes-le-Chateau seem not just relaxing and bucolic, but as if it is the center of a decades-long intrigue, and that just maybe it hides a fabulous treasure that's waiting for some tourist to find it. Wait, this whole thing stems out of an attempt to flog a failing resort? That is such a disappointing origin story. Uh, it's as if you were telling us that the Shroud of Turin started out as a before image meant to sell a detergent that gets stubborn human-shaped stains out of linen. That is, in fact, the risk of looking behind the curtain and seeing the man pulling the levers. But indeed, Putnam and Wood conclude that the whole saga starts with this 1956 travel series, in which author Albert Solomon published stories with titles like The Fabulous Discovery of the Cure with Billions. The accompanying drawings depict Sonier, a treasure chest, and four rolled-up parchments, in case the over-the-top text isn't enough. Corpu, it seems, not only pulled out all the stops in terms of hospitality, from the best suite to the finest food and drink, but also spent days regaling the journalist with his first-person tales of the secret that Sonier's lady took with her to the grave, the various coins and precious items he claimed to have found as crumbs of a much larger still-hidden treasure, etc., this is also where we first hear of the mysterious parchments found in the Visigothic altar pillar. And Corbu also appears to be the source of some other details. For example, he suggested that the reason the priest traveled so extensively was so he could melt down all of the gold he had found into ingots, which could then be sold without arousing the suspicion that ancient crowns, scepters, and other precious items might engender. Okay, so the lost treasure was a fabrication by Corbu, probably based on rumors that have circulated around the town during Sonier's life and downfall. But we still don't know how Sonier got the huge amount of money he spent on renovations in the first place. 
Not so fast. Putnam and Wood argue it's pretty obvious where a lot of the money came from if you just look at the records of the church's proceedings against Sonier. Which were still grinding their way through the church judicial process when he died. Those indicate that, after the initial legitimate funds that the priest had raised from benefactors and parishioners to remodel the church proved insufficient for Sonier's aims, he began traveling around France, Italy, and Switzerland, offering his services to say masses for believers, beloved, late family members, a traditional practice among devout Catholics intended to improve the decedent's experience in the afterlife. However, Sonier was selling a number of masses he couldn't possibly have actually conducted, meaning that he was fraudulently taking these people's money for services he couldn't render. The authors acknowledge that even with this fraud, which was generating a huge number of daily donations through the mail at points, Sonier still couldn't have accumulated the fantastic sums that he eventually spent. Amounting to over $2 million in today's money. And so there remains a mystery as to how he got the rest, but there are plenty of candidate explanations. For example, the authors provide correspondence indicating that he did indeed continue to receive donations from wealthy individuals, but that those donations were to remain anonymous as a condition of the gifts themselves. There is also a possibility that during the remodeling around the cemetery in the parish, he and Marie may have made some late-night raids into graves for valuables from the deceased. Unproven, maybe unprovable, but far more likely than finding a massive hitherto unknown treasure or blackmailing the Vatican with indisputable proof of Jesus babies. But of course, that was not the place where the story stopped evolving, because as we noted before, Plantard's forged documents and other manipulations put his friend Desed on the case, and in 1967 he published his book on the supposedly accursed supposed treasure. Clearly, Putnam and Wood are gleeful, relating the total nonsense that Desed, encouraged by his friends and their forgeries, adds on to the already expanded version of the story Corbu had related a decade before. Quote, and what a story now emerged. No longer was the tale confined to the strange activities of a local cure, spending large sums of money acquired by dubious means. We are now introduced to a wider setting in which Sonias appears as one participant in a shadowy world of secret societies, conspiracies, and unexplained death. Furthermore, a glance at the book shows an impressive list of references. Research has been carried out and archives have been consulted. Surely we have here a work which all serious historians ought to take into account? Nice sarcasm, gentlemen. Of course, the book is not a great source for reliable history. Plantard would hardly have encouraged his friend to look into the fraud if he thought Desed would uncover the truth. And indeed, the author has no compunctions about playing fast and loose with his supposedly nonfiction narrative. For example, Putnam and Wood note several occasions where Desed recounts conversations word for word that were held between two people who were long dead and for which there were no records. Even more importantly, Desed claims to have seen copies of the fabled parchments that Sonier found, both of which contained ciphers that readers of his book later explicated. But in spite of the fact that these parchments had at that point supposedly been missing for 70 years, he offers no explanation of who provided these copies to him or what circumstances brought them to his attention in the first place. Now, in spite of all the fabrications that have been added to the story, there are some weird elements to the history of Rennes-le-Chateau that we've already mentioned, and which are absolutely true. There are a bunch of weird decorations in the church, though none of them seem to be connected to the terrible secret of the pentacle. Whatever that is, as Lincoln intimated in his film. For example, do you remember when we mentioned the seemingly inexplicable inscription over the church's doorway reading, This Place is Terrible, in Latin? Well, that turns out to have a perfectly orthodox Catholic explanation. 
It's like half a quote from Genesis, specifically chapter 28, verse 17, which appears in the middle of the story of Jacob and Esau. We're not a Bible study. Look it up. In these verses, Jacob wakes up from a vision where God was talking to him and realizes the ground where he had this vision is now holy. So the full quote in the King James Version, verses 16 and 17, is, And Jacob awakened out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid, and said, How dreadful is this place! This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. The various Bible versions don't all say dreadful or terrible. Some say <clears throat> fearful. Some say awe-inspiring, some say awesome, in the pre-1980s sense of inspiring awe. But if you read it in context, Sonier's stonemason is just putting in a reference to the holiness of the church building by half-quoting a familiar Bible story about the holiness of the house of the Lord. A lot of Rennes-le-Chateau weirdness evaporates like this when you take a closer look. Having surveyed the entire story of Rennes-le-Chateau and dug as deeply as facts and authentic documents will allow, Putnam and Wood wrap up their fantastic treatment of the strange tale this way. Sonnier was an unusual man. Plantard and de Cherisy were unusual in the extreme. The amount of effort that the latter two expended in inventing the puzzles, genealogies, and the fake history is immense. Our critics will say, as others have done, that no one would have done this simply to mislead. Financial gain does not appear to have been their motive. To which we reply, strange as it may seem, all the evidence indicates that they did exactly that. By intention or not, these two men carried out one of the most amazing historical deceptions that there has ever been. You hear that? Finally, we have hit the bedrock of the story. There's no more bullshit to uncover, though it's still kind of dizzying to look back at everything we've dug through to get here. To offer the briefest possible recap, a humble priest in the French countryside develops caviar tastes on a hamburger helper salary. He does some dirt to get cash to rebuild his rural parish to unheard-of glory, is removed by the Catholic powers that be, and leaves only grand construction and rumors of ill-gotten gains in his wake. A woman who is, for all intents and purposes, his widow, sells the mansion she now owns to a developer who has big plans for the place. When these don't work out, he concocts a story tying the corrupt priest to a mysterious treasure and some ancient parchments, the very idea of which he fabricated. The news stories get the attention of a totally unrelated fabulist with dreams of becoming a king and founding a legendary society. He, in turn, convinces a friend to accept a whole pile of fraudulent claims, tying the developer stories together with the fabulists. That friend writes a book about the whole thing. Then, by sheer fucking chance, a very ambitious, incredibly easy-to-fool filmmaker picks up the story and brings it to an English-speaking audience, then ropes in some equally credulous collaborators, and they spin a still larger web of complete, raving nonsense around the existing story. So crazy a confection that even the fabulist wants off the merry-go-round. Finally, a mediocre writer of thrillers is handed a set of notes by his wife, who read the crazy book that the world's least skeptical researchers have built out of layer upon layer of poorly researched and or fraudulent nonsense. And the book that he writes, based on those notes, goes on to become a huge publishing phenomenon, inspiring sequels, a series of unwatchable films, and a whole new movement of people who want to believe a bunch of bullshit alternative history without doing their homework. And, let's not forget that in spite of all the self-deluding, the conning, the pranks, and the other nonsense in that long story, there is very much a conspiracy here. It's a conspiracy of hoaxers and cons on one side, and on the Da Vinci Code Holy Blood side, what we can only call deliberate, self-interested credulity. 
And with that, in the words of Daniel Plainview, I'm finished. And this is Alan. Hello. We're from the Lunatics Radio Hour podcast, where we explore the history of horror and modern horror storytelling. We do deep dives into legends like ghost trains or the Headless Horseman or Wendigos. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Including cell phones and computers. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.